Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is my good friend, Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, also known by many as the Bug Lady. She's an ornamental entomologist specializing in integrated pest management. Suzanne has been involved in the green industry for more than 25 years with a primary focus on biological controls and using pesticides properly. She is a graduate of the University of Florida with degrees in both entomology and environmental horticulture. Suzanne has been on the podcast multiple times, and I highly suggest folks go back and listen to some of her other podcasts if you haven't already. This podcast, though, is a two-part series where we discuss some of the latest research in cannabis and hemp from a recent invite-only conference she attended, one of the biggest topics being viruses and cannabis. Now on to the show. Hey, Suzanne, thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. It's always exciting to talk to you. You had called me uh, recently on the phone to tell me about a conference that you had gone to up in Canada where there was some new information and research that had come out that you wanted to share with growers. Um, so I'll just let you dive in and explain some of the stuff that you learned. Okay. Well, it wasn't in Canada, but that's okay. I'm, it, the, oh. <laughs> one of the researchers there was from Canada. Um, so that is probably where the okay. confusion happened. It was actually at Colorado State out in Fort Collins. And it was um, a hemp research meeting. It's for the researchers in Western United States uh, that are working on hemp pests. There were some hemp researchers from the East Coast there, but it's the, uh, the people that are focused on uh, insects, disease, mites, nematodes. And actually, there were even some presentations on herbicide trials um, <coughs> uh, for outdoor fiber production, because in, in that situation, trying to grow hundreds of acres of hemp um, without an herbicide has is, is a really uh, big problem because the weeds are just overtaking the hemp crop and you don't get a harvestable crop because, you know, some of these weeds, I don't want to call them quite super weeds, but they can overtake the hemp pretty easily. Um, and so, uh, work needs to be done on that because currently there are no registered herbicides for hemp. So the researchers are doing the work there and trying to figure out uh, like what pre-emergent herbicides can be used or um, more targeted herbicides uh, that would be safe to use for fiber hemp production. So it, it was a, a combination of um, multiple disciplines which was super interesting. But the, the thing that I found super interesting is um, a friend slash colleague of mine from Canada, uh, Dr. Zamir Punja. Um, he and I have spoken together at a handful of meetings. Uh, he's with Simon Fraser University. And being that he's in Canada, he's got an advantage over some of the U.S. researchers. Because again, notice I said I was at a hemp meeting um, because we still have that same issue where the university people can't really work on cannabis, they can only work on hemp, where up in Canada, um, Zamir um, can work on hemp and has been actually doing a lot of his work in actual cannabis production facilities, which really helps to give us a better real world perspective on, um, on what's happening out there. Um, and one of the things that I found super interesting, and again, I am not a plant pathologist. I will never pretend to be one. You guys know I will not consult on plant pathology, but I dangle around the edge of it because I have several friends that are plant pathologists and I do see a lot of things out in the field is that when they started looking at fusarium, which fusarium has been a pretty bad problem in cannabis and hemp, um, that they're finding multiple fusarium species. Most people just think fusarium is fusarium, but fusarium is not fusarium. Um, most of the time when you look up fusarium, um, you are learning, you come across fusarium oxysporum. That is one that we commonly see in ornamental crops. Um, and there is a significant amount of research on it, but they found, uh, Zamir found 
in Canada that about when they find Fusarium, about 65% of the time it is Oxysporum. Um, and so there are other Fusarium species out there. Um, and Bowie, again, I'm not a plant pathologist and I'm going to uh, butcher this. And I can already feel my friends, my plant pathologist friends cringing when I'm going to pronounce this. Uh, there's a pro-lifer, a Tim, and it's P-R-O-L-I-F-E-R-A-T-U-M. They're finding that Fusarium about 25% of the time. So there's a 25% chance that that's the Fusarium you could be dealing with. And there's some other more obscure runs. Um, but just be aware that um, you may need to do a little more digging if you are dealing with Fusarium. And you may need to get tested um, to find out which one you have to find the best management practice. And one of the other things that was interesting, um, and I've mentioned this before, is that we always think about fusarium being a root bore disease and being systemic inside of the plant. Um, there is a foliar or aerial fusarium, and they've actually been recovering fusarium from flower buds um, on cannabis plants. And one of the other interesting things that... Um, they've been observing and this comes down to propagation is that root bound plants which i see a lot of root bound cannabis plants tend to have more fusarium issues that having those spiraled roots that girdle in on themselves are not good um and you need to make sure you have really well um developed but also you know branching root systems and not spiraling to help prevent uh, fusarium issues um, in your plants. And it was interesting when they were talking about that, like all the researchers were like, yeah, yeah. Especially when they talked about, uh, the, the spiraling girdling roots in pots and how important that is for them not to have that. Cause what I often see is people hold plants too long in either a four inch or a one gallon. And then the roots go around the edge of the pot and then they just pot them up. And then it doesn't grow out of that circular root ball shape. Um, and it just, the roots get tighter and tighter in on themselves. Um, if you're not familiar well, with, you know, how to untangle your roots and kind of flange them out, make sure you do some reading on doing that. And better yet, don't let them get root bound in the smaller containers. Um, yeah, let's let's touch on that for a second. Um, so on Instagram, I see people posting photos of their bragging about their roots. And in, in a lot of, you know, whether it's a mycorrhizal company or something like that. And a lot of times in those photos, like you said, the roots will be wrapping around themselves. So essentially you can remove the pot and you'll still see the shape of the container yeah. just out of made up of root mass. And um, while that's good root biomass, that's not optimal for plant health. Um, and, and like you said, so what you need to do is transplant sooner or if you're using fabric pots or the fertile pots, um, those types of pots that helps prevent mm -hmm. this root girdling and uh, you want white bright white roots, not the brown or mushy looking roots that typically a sign of root disease. So I just wanted to touch on those points why, since you brought up root health. Um, and yeah, people do need to transplant sooner a lot of times. I like to transplant, a, I guess my biggest visual clue since this is a podcast would be when the roots are visible through the soil or the media um, and have enough structure to hold the, the shape of the of the container that they were coming out of, but yet are not seen visibly starting to turn and wrap around that container. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. And I would, I would agree with that statement. Yeah. I, I mean, it's easy to check too. So that's the thing. People need to be checking their plants to see what stage of root growth they're at and transplant accordingly. Yeah. You actually, the, probably where I see this the most is in the tree industry. Um, and people go by, you know, uh, canned in pots, trees, and, and then they just go pop them out of the pot and stick them in the ground. And the trees, as the tree grows, it literally chokes itself to death. So it might not die in the first few years, but later on in life, it will choke itself to death. And um, I've, been in enough like forensic dead tree talks and they'll show how they'll pop these trees up and the tree just girdled itself to death because it was the roots mm -hmm. were girdled or with trees also planting too deep is one of the biggest tree killers um people plant them too deep and pile up soil around the top of the tree and that can be fatal there's a 
famous study where they looked at how many trees coming out of nursery production and then planted in yards or planted too deep. So, I mean, roots, planting them correctly, not having girdled roots, not planting too deep is all really important. Um, now, I will you know, have to say that certain plants, especially like tomatoes, you can plant deep because they throw adventitious roots. Cannabis can throw adventitious roots too. But, you know, know your plant, know girdled roots, and know how deep to plant it. Yeah, and if you do get root girdling like that, uh, you actually want to go through and score the roots. So I'll take a, a knife or a sharp tool and, and, go, and go down at least four or five times around a circular pot as a way of loosening those roots up and, and spreading them out. So it's not the end of the world if it does happen, but if you don't want to plant that plant as is, you actually need to break up the roots, I guess. Yeah, you and can... We're, more aggressive than people realize with it. The plants can handle it. Yeah. You know, we will tend to, because, you know, we have seven acres here and we've been planting lots of trees here. We'll tend to take the roots and just like pull them out and then plant them with the roots then kind of out in the hole to, to spread them. Um, that said, if you do cut your roots or root prune them um, before planting, make sure your tool is clean. And then also... You know, anytime you wound, there is a chance of pathogens can get in. Um, and, you know, good old fusarium. Um, you know, interesting. Um, uh, Zamir has not only looking at what diseases they have. He's also been trialing um, some products as far as prevention. And like with the fusarium, they found that... Um, uh, Root Shield did really well in their trials, and that's Trichoderma. They also did Pre-Stop. Uh, Pre-Stop is a newer product from Lullimond, and then also Aspirillo, which is coming from BioBest. All three of those product, products formed well as a preventative um, to getting Fusarium. It's not going to fix it, um, and that's why. For me, I've always been really big about Trichoderma applications early on um, because Trichoderma will actually eat Fusarium and protect your roots and prevent you from getting the problem. Because once you get fusarium, it's very, very difficult to manage. So prevention is key here. So they are finding in their cannabis trials on fusarium that again, Root Shield, Pre-Stop and Aspirillo have been doing a very good preventative job of um, preventing the plants from getting the pathogens. Did they talk about environmental conditions or seasonality affecting um, prevalence of fusarium? No, because he his his stuff that he's doing is controlled in indoor environment. So it's not as seasonal as it would be outside in outdoor production. Okay. Because it's 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 summer year round inside of a greenhouse. Sure, but we still see it showing yeah. up, obviously, in you, greenhouses you can, and indoor environments. Um, and, you know, things like, even though cannabis doesn't get it, like downy mildew, you don't get that till later season because on the East Coast, that's got to blow up on the the uh, jet stream. And so you can see seasonality of disease because the environment's moving um, the, the disease around. Um, but no, he didn't go into that too much uh, in, at all on the environment um, as far okay. as patterns. That is crazy to me, too. Uh, I remember hearing that at a talk about how these spores actually go up um, into the atmosphere, like quite high mm -hmm. in the environment. Like you mentioned the jet stream. I, I had no idea that the spores could travel as far or as high as they, they do or that researchers found. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's some crazy stuff where they're actually, you know, they, going up there and then looking for what they can find up in, I don't know if the right words, the atmosphere. Um, and, um, and look, and they're finding pathogens up there. Um, and that's why, yeah, you know, with hurricanes, you know, I grew up in Florida um, and w work a lot in the Florida industry too. And why we see um, bad disease issues after hurricanes. And I kind of thought it was because, oh, there's so much rain, but they think now part of it is is just the giant wind blender of moving all the pathogens around and then dumping the pathogens. Um, so there's some interesting hmm. work being looked at with that stuff. So cool. Well, uh, what other research did you find um, was presented at, at the conference that well, you thought would be relevant to cannabis? I think one of the biggest focuses that Zamir has been working on is hops latent viroid, which is, you know, very, I don't know if it's a sensitive, touchy, I don't know what the description is, but it's, it's a, 
it's 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 an issue. Um, and for a while, I wasn't sure. I was convinced how much of an issue it was only because, again, I don't run in this arena. Again, I run with six and eight legged things, but um, they had done or they have been doing um, up in Canada some really extensive testing. And um, in 2020 through 2022, um, they started testing um, cannabis plants. Um, for um, different diseases, um, mo mostly virus stuff. Well, virus and hops-laden viroid, which is not a virus, um, and looking at the different things. And they did find um, through their surveying out there in Canada, they tested uh, 1700, over 1,700 cannabis plants in Canada, and they found that about 19% of those plants tested positive for hops latent viroid. That's almost 20% wow. of the plants tested positive. Um, most people um, don't know they have it. And I would say until it's too late, but since there's no way of curing or fixing it, um, you know, it's, it's too late is just too late. Just having it is too late, but they start seeing, you know, the smaller plants, the smaller flowers. But one of the biggest take-home things for me was the imagery um, that they had um, of the trichomes and how the trichomes were significantly smaller. You still have the same number of trichomes, but you have smaller, like these deflated, it's almost like a deflated balloon of a trichome head and leads to less THC and less uh, CBD. So um, it, it can be pretty devastating uh, to the crop. Uh, one thing that was, this was one of the very interesting things for me. Um, and again, don't come back to me and ask questions because I'm not a plant pathologist. Um, and Zamir has put out some really good papers and he's done some really good um YouTube videos um, out there. But one of the things they started looking at was if they're testing plants and people are like, yeah, hey, I test my plants, they test negative, and then they, you know, sell off clones or move them to other facilities. Why is it spreading so much? Well, what they started looking at is they were test, they tested the roots, the stems, and um, the leaves of the plants. And what was super interesting is that, um, on on the testing they found that and he had this really great chart um which i talked to him about recreating this chart for an online infograph and i need to talk to him about getting that done but basically if they tested a leaf you could have a negative result if you tested a stem you could have a negative result if you tested that same plant and you tested the roots you can test positive but hmm. if the leaves test positive, the roots are always positive. So if you really wanna know if you have it or not, you have to test the roots because again, if the, the roots are the, 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 the one consistently positive thing in a way, because again, you can have negative leaves and negative roots, but you can't have positive leaves and negative roots. If the foliage is positive and the stems are positive, the roots are gonna be positive. But you can have positive roots and negative stems and foliage. So just testing the foliage is not enough. And I think possibly this is what's happened is because we're also trained for testing the foliage for viruses. You know, I wasn't ever taught to test roots for viruses. But then when people started talking mm -hmm. about it more, they're like, well, yeah, certain viruses move to the root systems and they hang out there. Um, and then later on, they express themselves, thus latent viroid. And so they think this is part of what's happening is people test their plants and in good faith, they think they're negative, but they're actually positive because it's, it's positive in the root system. And so I think this is kind of what's created some problems, confusions, and, you know, you think you have clean plants, but then you end up with the viroid and how did you get it? Um, and there's been lots of speculation on um, how it is being transmitted out there. So that was a super interesting thing um, for me to realize that you can't just be testing foliage, that you need to be testing root systems, but be cautious. 
because you can't test like roots with soil because the soil can mess up test results. You have to, um, you know, talk with your testing company on the procedure and protocol. And um, when I was at um, MJ BizCon last week with you, um, I did talk to some of the the testing companies and um, I'm waiting for some answers on protocol for testing roots because the people at the show didn't have a clear answer because again, you have to be able to remove all the soil, but you can't add anything that could possibly mess your test up. Yeah, I've been talking to uh, Three Rivers Biotech about this, and um, I'm just going back here to my notes. They did some research where they also found um, similar results where uh, they had 14 positive root samples. Only seven of those were positive on leaf samples out of uh, 35 cultivars. Um, it looks like they do have the ability to test roots because um, I'd asked them this after talking to you last. I need to confirm that because we've been working with them to offer offer testing for um, top slate and viroid. And uh, I know one of the recommendations was you test the plant and then test it again a few weeks later. And that's another way of, of kind of getting to that positive answer or, or negative answer or more confirmed negative. Z um, Zamir says three tests, three tests before you can three. say okay. a, a plant does not have it. The problem is, is you test it, you think it's negative and it's sitting there and it's possibly positive. And then you get into the, this, the spread. And this is stuff that Zamir has been looking at where they're looking um, at the movement. Like they, he had these maps of greenhouses and showing which plants are positive and you could see, you know, hot zones. And the question is, is how's it being spread? I know it's been thrown out there about root aphids vectoring it pretty much all the research people have, you know, said that's not likely. Um, I, I had been uh, corresponding with Dr. Susan Halbert. Um, she's one of the top aphid experts um, in probably North America. And, you know, the general consensus is most likely not. Um, you know, there's enough mechanical of people with pruners and touching plants and this and that. Um, and one of the areas they're just starting to look at is it could it be waterborne. Um, again, not my wheelhouse. We're going to have to wait until more research comes out about this. And again, I know that um, in the hemp side of things here in the United States, like Purdue's looking at all this stuff, UC Riverside and up in Canada, Simon Fraser Universities, who's uh, doing a lot of this research on this stuff. So there's not clear answers yet. And, you know, again, uh, this is so you don't think it's pest it's spread by pests at this time mm -mm. it's not it's not a likely vector when you say waterborne though are you talking about splashing from when people are mechanically watering or are you talking about like transpiration like through water um, movement like through sub irrigation sharing like ebb and flood benches things like that i wonder if that's mm, okay part of the well yeah for me i think the bigger implication is for those of us that reuse the media if that uh, soil has had a plant that had a, you know, a positive test for a virus. Um, I don't know if we have ways of remediating that at this point in time. Um, yo, though I have growers with, you know, currently doing quite well that have tested positive for the virus and are reusing their media in those beds. Um, they just have to really manage the plants and keep them really healthy. And then they don't see a lot of, effect from the virus, I guess. But if they if they miss it and the plants are, are not as healthy as they should be, then it seems like they just really crash much harder than a non-infected plant would. Well, it's just like people, you know, if you're run down, you're not eating well, you're having Coke for breakfast every day, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I just... <laughs> You're, you're, I just want to be careful with our human analogies because I feel like some people take them too far. I, I agree. Um, in this case, I think it applies, but in other cases, I think people start making comparisons that don't necessarily I, fit. I so. agree. <laughs> I agree. But we all know anything. If you're healthier, you're less likely to to have issues. I mean, that's that's a well known thing, and I do think that um, with having healthy plants, I mean, you can uh, just like root aphids. I mean, I've seen people with root aphids. And bad ones, but they have a healthy looking crop um, because the plants are healthy enough to get through it. Uh, and, and I agree with you. That's one of the things that scares me about raising soil is, you know, chopping the plants off 
and then planting right next to it, you're not removing the the roots that can have pathogens in them. Um, also, when people chop the foliage and put it on the soil surface, because you can just be recycling pathogens and pests right back into your system. And I, I know the, 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 but we've got enough healthy things to fight it. Well, you hope you do. You do until you don't. Um, mm -hmm. And from an environmental standpoint, I understand, you know, reusing the soil because that's, you know, much more eco-friendly to do, but at the same time, the, you have to know your crop and you have to know your risk to know if that's right for what you're doing. And also depends on on the size of your your production because if you've got, you know, some of my growers on ornamentals, you know, they're hundreds of acres and trying to micromanage all those crops, you know, it's just, it's, it's too difficult. If you have a smaller growing system, often like you do in cannabis, you can micromanage the crops better. Well, it's different too when the plant's leaving the facility as a living plant consistently, like you see with your ornamental side. Um, you brought up this concept though of healthy plants being more resistant. And that kind of in my head led me to the bricks discussion oh, that you see. And I just feel like we should at least talk about it because I still see it out there oh. quite a bit. Um, can you just explain to me, because I've mentioned this to people, that there is research out there that shows that um, and, and I, correct me if I misstate this, but that it doesn't really matter how healthy your plant is. If there's insect pressure that is sufficient, you will still, the insects will still eat the plant more or less. Right. And sugars did not equate healthy. Okay. I mean, if, I mean, just take us through it, I guess. So, um, there is this should I say urban legend? And you know, the people that make these claims say they have data, but they won't show you any data or any research. Um, but as of yet, the research that has been looked at that pretty much disproves it, um, just because you have high bricks does not mean you have pests. Um, and I see this in almost every talk I give, if you walk out your back door and you're in like virgin forest in the middle of Montana or, you know, Wyoming, every plant you're looking at there is getting eaten by insects because plants are designed to be eaten by insects. That's what they do. It's an ecology. You know, you look at oak trees, caterpillars eat the leaves. That's why trees have so many leaves. The caterpillars poop on the ground. It makes the fertilizer for the tree. It's not a bad thing, plants being eaten. But when we have these monocultures and want perfect plants, this is when, you know, this human, you know, we're trying to create a crop for humans and we have zero tolerance really for insects, even though plants can still perform well, even if there's feeding damage on them. Sugars really, I mean, you think about it, if, if insects didn't like to feed on sugary plants, why do things eat apples? Why do things eat grapes? Why do things eat blueberries? I mean, those fruits are all super high in sugars. And, you know, you look at uh, Drosophila suzukii, um, trying to remember the common name right now, it's, it's a huge pest in berries where this uh, Drosophila, it's a fruit fly, comes in, lays its egg inside of blueberries, raspberries, all these different berries. And then the maggot eats uh, the fruit and that's high sugar. So how is high sugar stopping that? It's not. And that's the crazy thing to me. I, I just don't know. The whole idea of the bricks and the, in fact, I, I do have over in my drawer right next to me, I have a bricks meter. That's more testing sugars for uh, uh, for understanding for grapes for knowing the sugar content for you know food consumption, um, and this whole idea of just pumping your bricks and you won't have pest issues. There's just no evidence of it out there. So could we could we say though that if you had two cannabis plants and one had a higher bricks level it may in theory be a healthier plant if it's the same cultivar does bricks, um, does and high maybe, bricks mean healthy does, i mean that's the correlation that a lot of growers or association that a lot of growers have been making 
um, is supposedly it's going to be healthier. And if you hit a certain bricks number on that for that particular crop, and it's going to be a different number for blueberries, apples, cannabis, then you will not see pest pressure on that plant. Um, that's, I mean, that's the argument that's, that's being presented. Where's, um, where's, but from an entomologist, you're saying that you just haven't seen any research to support this. Well, there, there's not research that supports it. Um, we've seen, there's like one paper that was kind of inconclusive, but pretty much the research that has been done in the past disproves this claim. Um, and again, the people that are currently making these claims, they'll just say, they say they have data, but they've never publicly released it. They've never published a paper on it. They've never written a scientific journal article, nothing. It's like, we've got this big secret, but we're not going to tell you how we did anything. Just trust us, even though we're not going to tell you anything. And I, Okay, I, so I, if anyone has data on this and is listening, send it to Suzanne. <laughs> And uh, we'll we'll do a whole podcast on bricks if uh, if someone can prove it to be effective. So <laughs> um, one one other note, though, when we're talking about this, though, there there is like you mentioned this human analogy. There is it is the same with plants. If you have a healthier plant, it's going to be more resistant to pests. Pests tend to go to the stressed out plant um, in your room, right? I mean, that's fairly. Is, is, is that safe to say? You're kind of uh, making a face like I'm, yes, I'm happy But at the same time, um, I, again, uh, you know, I, I, also, I also think part of our problem is is the, the fact we're dealing with so many invasives that that kind of throws everything out the window because you look at the United States and ash trees and they're, they're basically all gone because of emerald ash borer. And you cannot tell me these millions of trees that have been killed were unhealthy. Um, it's because we had an invasive come in, the emerald ash borer, and wipe out all the trees. Um, and those trees have been living healthily for you know hundreds of years um, in the forests here. So I think that's another thing. I mean, yes, plant health and not going overboard with plant health because there's this fine line of you know, NPK and other nutrients and plants, but, you know, giving them too much love, too much nitrogen can definitely create pest issues. Um, we know that for sure. There's been really good research out of like Texas A&M looking specific at, specifically at nitrogen levels in correlation to Western flower thrips and two spotted spider mites, showing that pushing your plant with too much nitrogen creates pest problems. So there's this happy medium of not overfeeding, not underfeeding, being right in the million, mid, middle that makes it less attractive or because there's a difference between plants, pests being attracted to it or pests having a higher reproductive rate on the plant because of its nutritional content. Those are two completely different things. Um, you, you look at, um, I think what probably the most famous case of that is um, actually a metacloprid, which I know legal cannabis growers going to use. It's one of the neonics. Um, it's been used for decades. It's it's kind of at the center of the bee controversy. But one of the things we know about that is if you treat a plant with that, and then you put two spot spider mite on it, those spider mites females actually live longer and have more babies because a metacloprid without going too deep, basically acts as a plant growth stimulant, making the plant more nutritious for spider mites. So in that situation, hmm. you know, you can have a healthy plant and just by putting a pesticide on it, you can create a spider mite problem. I hadn't heard that. That's really interesting. It's super interesting hmm. because initially um, the research um they thought what was happening in the landscape was a metacloprid was killing off the beneficials. And that's why the spider mites were exploding. But um, one of the guys involved with that Mike Rupp at the University of Maryland, he is an amazing uh, landscape uh, research entomologist. Uh, he and his wife, are Paula Shoesbear, are like a powerhouse of, of nerddom. I love them to death. They're great people. Um, but Mike got involved and he helped figure out that, no, it's not that it's killing off the beneficials. And, and they actually, I've seen 
images where plants treated with metoclopril, the leaves are actually bigger than non-treated plants in a controlled study because again it, it, it's it's acting as a plant growth stimulant so there's i mean there's so many things going on that we and we want a simple answer and we want to simplify everything um and you can't because no matter what you do there's going to be a consequence to what you do but what we try to do is have minimal impact reduce our pest risk and you know, follow science as, as what we know. And at the same time, try to be environmental. I mean, that's my goal. Yeah. So that made me lead back to the, the bricks thing. Maybe that's a simplified explanation, but maybe there's something that some, that people are doing in their ways of supposedly attaining higher sugar levels that may increase pest resistance that we a mechanism we haven't identified but then they they should be able to see that in the studies yes that would that you would think it would be reflected in the in the research unless those researchers are not replicating what you know people are claiming in the field but and and there's so many so so many you can uh, back to the imidacloper thing i think it's a good example that you know everybody thought and it makes sense that, you know, you apply a pesticide that's going to kill off the beneficials and you have more pest issues. You know, we see that quite a bit with especially like bifenthrin and things like that. So that's where everybody just assumed that was the result. I mean, that's why it was happening. But not till we really get in there. You know, it really had nothing to do with the beneficials in that situation. And I think people jump to anecdotal conclusions without having controls and without having replications, because if you're a commercial production facility, it's very hard to have a, a, a control where, hey, we're just not going to you know, treat or do this, or we're going to treat in a different way and then have replications because your goal is to produce a product and get it out the door, not do research. And I think sometimes people jump to conclusions, um, which I will say though, that these anecdotal observations that growers do see are very important because that plants the seed for the research. And then we need to look at that and be like, okay, is this what's happening? And that's where the whole start of the BRICS thing years ago. Um, Because a lot of this Mm -hmm. BRICS work is really older work. Um, It's not something that was done the last couple of years, it's probably decades ago, um, that they did go out and and look at these um, and you know, get the research from an anecdotal observation. So I'm not discounting anybody's observations. It's very important to be observant, start, you know, thinking about, well, why is this happening? Why are we seeing this? Why is this plant doing this? And try to figure it out. And then, and this is kind of what I do with my observations through the industry as I travel everywhere. I'm in all kinds of production facilities And then I'm like, okay, well, we don't understand this. And then I'll go to my research friends at the university who they can do the controlled research and help work with them to um, formulate the the trials that need to be done. Um, I'm actually heading to Michigan next week because I'm on an advisory committee for um, high tunnel Uh, production. And I'm going to be working with several universities on helping steer research from observations I've seen in the field of like what research we need to to do. And so that's how this Mm -hmm. whole process kind of works. And I think sometimes people make observations and they jump through the science, they jump past the scientific method and make a claim. So they go straight from hypothesis to conclusion without running a controlled trial and i you do see that and i think it's really hard not to when you're in a in a facility or in in a functional grow room because like you said if you see something and and you get a result that you like you want to repeat that result over and over again and just in your head make an assumption for what's actually going on and it may not be accurate so yeah that's a that's a good point but let's we got way off topic (laughs) i didn't even mean to bring that all up you that's all you ted it, it was, it was, it was something on my mind when you brought up plant health. So let's get back to it though. What other, uh, what other research was shared at the conference? Well, the other that thing at, that, that took me by surprise, again, normally, you know, I'm, 
when they're talking about disease stuff, I'm off doodling and, you know, not paying attention. Um, but again, Zamir stuff was just so interesting because um, past the Hopsleyton viroid onto viruses um, is the viruses they're finding, which um, tobacco mosaic virus, which um, I've known to have been in cannabis, but I was actually kind of surprised that I, when I mentioned this to a group of cannabis growers, they didn't think that tobacco, I mean, that cannabis got tobacco mosaic virus. Um, and I guess there's still a myth out there circulating that it doesn't really get it. But, um, again, over sampling over like 2000 plants, they found uh, 53 samples with tobacco mosaic virus. The thing that I was surprised about was I did not know that cannabis could get tobacco streak virus. And they actually had 56 samples of tobacco streak virus, which was, um, surprising to me because again i i honestly didn't know too much about tobacco streak virus so you know immediately to the internet to go learn and read about it um at lower levels they did found arabis mosaic virus um they found tomato bushy stunt virus um cucumber mosaic virus and very low low amounts of like um alfalfa mosaic virus so overall looking at all their samples and everything um that it basically kind of came back to out of all their samples, about 7% of the plants they tested carried a virus, not a viroid, but a virus of some kind. So the viruses are out there. Um, and you know, some of them can be test for, um, with ELISA test kits that, you know, you can get from companies like Agdea, um, which, you know, most of my ornamental and vegetable growers keep those, uh, uh, test kits in-house. So they're always available in case they need to test right then. Um, but it is something that can be causing some problems that you may be mistaking for nutritional or other issues. So the viruses um, are out there. So just uh, to, to don't discount those um, on there. And just, you know, with Zamir too, um, and I can, I don't know if I send it to you or not. He actually put out a really good publication um, with the disease stuff for cannabis. Um, if you don't have it, I'll send you a link and then you can link it out or attach it, however you do your internet magic. Um, but um, I highly recommend if you ever have a chance to hear Zamir speak. He, um, he does a, an amazing uh, job presenting. Okay, I'll have to try and get him on the podcast. I know somebody um, that, that knows him that could probably get him on the podcast for you. <laughs> I, you are my main source of podcast guests. Thank you. Um, that's really interesting. I think the, the tobacco mosaic virus stuff sort of came from no one actually having an actual test. It was all speculation. Um, it was kind of like, like you said, the growers making observations and then we finally got in a laboratory and now you've seen tests that actually show that it is, showing up in cannabis because I for the longest time didn't think it was an actual cannabis disease because no one ever actually had a test to support their claim around it but um, it makes me wonder when you say all the viruses I wonder how many times people have thrown out a potential promising cultivar because it underperformed and, and maybe it wasn't even the the cultivar it was the a virus yeah but sometimes um, viruses can improve plants too so yeah. Yeah. I just wonder how that's affected our yeah. genetic choices by breeders and things like that. So yeah. it's interesting. Um, yeah. We might have to do a show on viruses now that we're talking about. Yeah. Viruses. I'm not it's, doing that. My, I've given you my, my virus <laughs> knowledge of limited again. I mean, this is really outside of my comfort zone because I like to stick with my bugs, but I find it very interesting. And obviously there is a correlation with things that do get vectored. Um, by insects and things like that um, because- can, can you touch on those? Like what are the main diseases that you would see vectored by in cannabis by the top curly cannabis virus, pests? West coast only, East coast people, you guys have dodged a huge bullet. Um, East coast, West coast guys, if you're not familiar with beet top curly virus and it's vector, you, um, you really need to uh, be aware of it. Um, 
there was talk after talk after talk. Um, in fact, some of them that talked about um, how it has messed up their field trial research. Um, one of my friends, a researcher out in California, she got it in her hemp trial plants. And it's it's vectored by the beet leafhopper. Um, and it's all up and down the West Coast. What I, I think one of the more interesting things I found out about this is some of the researchers commented when they tried to rear the beet leafhopper just on hemp, they couldn't. What it sounds like is happening, because this is actually um, a, a, an insect that feeds on multiple plants, and it's picking up um, the virus as it's feeding out in the environment. It hops onto a hemp plant, you know, sticks its mouth part in because they have a piercing sucking mouth part, feeds a bit, transmits, and like, mm, yeah, no, and then leaves the plant. And now you're infected. And so it's not like hemp is its primary host. It just kind of, I don't want to say it's accidentally getting it, but it's kind of just, it's, it's, it's feeding and getting off and it, and it's spreading it. Now in other crops, how they manage this is they get rid of the weeds. Back to the problem with outdoor hemp, there are no herbicides. And, you know, if you're growing 20 plants, sure, you can hand weed. When you're getting into 500 acres of hemp, you're not hand weeding. Um, and and now you've got the weeds. Now you've got weeds taking over your plants. And now you've got weeds that can have the virus and host your vector. And it's just all downhill from there. So it's it's it's, it's a multi-pronged issue. But the, the key to management seems to be um, is, uh, you know, managing the weeds in the area that have it on it. So... Is there anything we can do for leafhoppers? Because I cannot stand those little buggers. They drive me nuts. Um, do we have any control options? You, you mentioned weed removal, but like in my home garden, they were a terror this last season. Well, then I would get into which ones were they and what kind of damage were they actually doing kind of thing. Um, I mean, I hate to say natural pyrethrins, um, but you run the risk of, um, you know, kind of disrupting any bio program you have out there. Uh, this is where crop covers can also be used. It's same methods we used for like flea beetle management and where you put floating row covers over and things like that to, to exclude them. But as far as biological or softer products with the softer products, it's going to be natural pyrethrins and soaps and they don't persist. So you're going to have to be continually treating for them. Well, they fly away so quickly too. I mean, to hit them with a soap the would adults, be challenging. The adults because yeah. immatures don't have wings. Okay. I guess I, I need to go back and even look what an immature looks like. I always just notice the adults. Yeah. Like I'll shake my sunflowers and they'll just, It'll be like a cloud. Of Sometimes though, they're not causing hoppers. any problems. It, it, it just, are they a problem or not? And, and in the case of um, hemp for Western United States, especially in the warmer areas, um, yes, it's an issue, but I mean, I've got tons of leafhoppers here on my property. I can go photograph them every day and they are of no economic importance. To, they don't do damage to any of my plants here. One Are point they vectoring for East anything else? <laughs> it's the only one you guys get. <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, we were just talking about ticks the other day on the phone, so uh, don't get me started on uh, issues with the East Coast and, and disasters and disease. So um, getting back to it, though, are there any other... Before we move on from leafhoppers, do they vector anything else besides that virus that's a potential Not that I know issue. of at this time. But again, as time goes on and these researchers are doing more of their surveys, we'll find more. But that's really the only one right now, um, I think, that is, you know, of what I'd consider major economic importance. Okay, so what about spider mites, root aphids, hemp russet, broad, all broads, all these other more common 
uh, cannabis pests. Are those vectoring any pathogens or other diseases potentially? Well, we know fungus gnats, um, there's a list of diseases they can vector, um, and that's because the larva feeds in the soil, they pick up the pathogens in their gut, and then when they're adults and they fly around and poop, they deposit on plants. I mean, that's well-known, well-studied, and that's why it's so important to manage your fungus gnats. Um, but I don't know in cannabis of anything, any of the mites are vectoring, um, you know, white flies can vector virus, but so far nothing in hemp or cannabis. Um, I think really that's, you know, most of the other viruses are more mechanical in nature of, of being vectored. Um, so we're, we're spreading them most likely with our clothes, our scissors, our hands. Yeah, things like that. Our, our watering, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you talk again about, you'd mentioned natural pyrethrins. Can you talk a little bit about pyrethrins, the pros and cons around them? Because I still hear some, some questions. I, I've chosen not to use them um, in my garden, um, but people get this idea that because a pesticide is natural, in this case, I think from the chrysanthemum, or this idea of planting uh, African chrysanthemums, they'll get pest resistance. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about all of that okay so there's pyrethrins as you said and those are derived um from a chrysanthemum and there's pyrethroids so you have to be very careful when you re read your labels pyrethrins are more expensive because they're a natural they're naturally extracted out of the plants pyrethroids are what has been synthesized in the lab it's a synthetic version of it where they can make it very inexpensively um the pyrethroid, the synthetic, is much more stable. When that is sprayed on a crop, uh, we cannot reintroduce beneficials in there for typically two months because of the persistence of that on the plant. At least eight weeks um, is what we have to wait. Natural pyrethrins um, that are, you know, in like pyganic, um, those are not nearly as stable. Uh, those tend to break down, and this it can be very variable depending on overhead irrigation or drip irrigation. Are you in Maine? Are you in Florida? You know, UV, heat, there's a lot of variables, but I like to at least wait a week, maybe 10 days, but it can, again, depend on which beneficial you're using before you get back in. Um, Indoors, under artificial lighting with no overhead irrigation, they can persist much longer um, than that. Um, they are broad spectrum. Um, the problem is, is, since they are one of our earlier pesticides, pyrethrins, and then again, we developed the pyrethroids, have been used so heavily. There's a lot of resistance issues in the sense that they may not even work on your target pest because the pest has had so much exposure to them. Um, that they possibly have developed resistance. So it can be sometimes a little bit of a crapshoot um, whether the product's going to work or not. Also, they're very non-selective. Um, it's going to kill your beneficials just as much as pests if, you know, they're all susceptible. And again, it's, it's not selective. And this is what makes, you know, my job challenging because, you know, I want to be environmental. I do. I mean, that's why I do my job is to reduce pest use. But, you know, when we start looking at what I call some of these new designer pesticides, um, I think salt and miticide is a really good example from BASF. Um, again, cannabis growers can't use it, but ornamental growers can. Um, strawberry, vegetables, though they can. So here you have a strawberry plant. And let's say you've got two spot spider mites. You can come in and spray it with sultan and... It is only going to kill, I think it five or six spider mite species are on the label and that's it. It doesn't do anything for broad mites. It doesn't do anything for russets. It doesn't do anything to any other insects or anything. It doesn't hurt the predators. And it, it's dialed in just for those handful of mites. So we can spray that and then use our beneficials in conjunction with it. Flip to the flip side, you know, I'm going to be organic, I'm going to be natural, and you come in, and so we're going to spray a natural pyrethrin like Pyganic. That's fine. It kills everything. It's blown out your beneficials. It may or may not even kill your spider mites. And actually, pyrethrins, pyrethroids are known for actually causing spider mite flares, which is a whole nother 
discussion. So you could actually make your your issue worth, but you're being organic and in theory being better for the planet. But now you're going to have to retreat again and retreat again. So it's really hard sometimes because these new designer products are so targeted to just kill a few different insects and not be broad spectrum killers, where a lot of the more natural products are very broad spectrum in their nature in killing. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough, you know, walking this road sometimes on making recommendations for me. Um, because with these new targeted products that, again, they're not going to be registered for cannabis stuff or approved for use in different states, but for ornamentals and vegetables. But we can just with pinpoint accuracy go in. It's kind of to me like the difference of how, you know, we're doing targeted chemotherapy today where they can just put it in one spot where the old days you would inject it and get it throughout your entire body and have to deal with it. Um, so it, it, it's tough. So, I mean, there can be a place for natural pyrethrins, I think for home gardeners that just, oh, we have a little spot here we want to spray. Um, and, you know, for cannabis, because many states do allow it uh, for use, but there are consequences to using it. Um, the fact that it will blow out your beneficials, it, it can be iffy on its persistence indoors, um, and it can la definitely last longer indoors than out. Um, and it's, it's too broad spectrum for me in a way. Okay. Um, any issues though? So, so you mentioned this, you know, these more selective options that we have, um, which is, which is great. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily trust all these large ag companies to have my best interest from a health perspective in mind, um, as well. And small and organic so companies do. No, I mean, we've, we've already seen that in the industry. You know, I, I always bring up Guardian Mite Spray because it's such a great example. Um, but there's been other companies out there too that have put out products. But how do we, you know, are there any issues, first of all, with pyrethrins in terms of human toxicology or safety if we're going to be combusting, inhaling, eating our, our product? Like if I was going to use this on my vegetables or, or things like that. Um, let me, let me ask you that question first, and then I have a couple others. Okay. Well, I'm not a medical doctor, and I don't really study or understand. I mean, I'm, that's not my specialty. Um, but the fact that it does break down in UV sunlight outside relatively quickly compared to other compounds, um, and it can be washed off plants. It's not systemic. Um, that That is something right there. So if you're going to spray it on your strawberries, since we're talking about strawberries, you can just wash it off. Um, if you're concerned about that okay. also, you know, the label is the law and if you know, you have your REI and this is really frustrating. So if you're a commercial grower, you have REIs and then you also have post-harvest intervals. So REI is you can spray it and then how long before you can go back into that area to work for your safety. And then post-harvest is okay. You spray it and how long before you can harvest your, uh, your goods. None of that information is available on homeowner pesticides, only commercial pesticides, even though oftentimes it's the same active ingredient. So a homeowner doesn't have as much access or cannabis growers that are buying homeowner products, they don't have as much access to as much information on safety as commercial growers do. Because sure, the regulation is just not as strict and then the same thing around is it's 25b right that's the 25b's are the exempt from epa registration yes because you will see company i mean we were both just at mj bizcon for example you'll go to a convention show or you'll see you'll look online you'll see this product that claims that it's you know all safe ingredients um, or all natural and that basically just means it's most likely registering as a 25b product where they don't fall under that epa registration um, there's just some marketing terms around there that can make it confusing, I think, for growers to really understand what's going on. So can you talk a little about 25B and why you tend to gravitate away from those products? Well, in many I, cases? I look at them all. Do not get me wrong. I will not turn a product away from looking at it because I'm still hoping we'll find. And, and there are some there are some products out there that have some um, potential. But basically, um, the EPA decided that there is a group of food grade inputs basically that if you want to make a pesticide out of them you're not going to kill yourself in the process and so they are allowing you to 
companies to scoot around EPA registration, um, which EPA registration in the United States, it's about, I think we're at like 10 years to get a product to market and about $10 million because you've got to prove bee safety, human safety, you know, all these different, you know, tests they have to do. Um, where the 25B basically, I mean, if I wanted to, I could go to my kitchen, take my 25B list, which, you know, has, you know, like soybean oil, I think corn oils on there. Uh, rosemary oil, and I can make that into a product and I can call it bug lady bug killer. And then depending on the state, like some states you go to, they want you to register. And basically that's just filling out a paperwork saying you're going to sell it here. It's a super easy process. And basically I can make any claims in theory that I want. I can say it's safe for beneficials, only kills pests, you know, and, and all these different claims but the EPA doesn't care about efficacy. They don't care about phytotoxicity. They don't care about any of that stuff. As long as you're not going to kill yourself or totally destroy the environment, they just kind of like, go, go do what you want. And that's where there's been this whole crop of products spring up that don't have the level of testing that most pesticides do, um, which is, you know, challenging because People can say whatever they want, basically, and they're getting away with it uh, for right now. And you've done some tests with growers actually on a few products, and we won't obviously name the names of those products here, but you found not only were a lot of these products more expensive, oh, God, crazy but you expensive. noticed phytotoxicity issues, not actual control. I mean, it might knock back a little bit some of the insect populations, but you'd see a resurgence. I mean, you've, we've talked about this before off air Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. I, and and do, I'm not throwing again, all these products out with the bathwater. In fact, we're testing two 25 B products at one of my facilities, ornamental facilities right now. We're actually spraying them on full color poinsettias. Um, because full color poinsettias are super, super sensitive. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, the skin of a redhead is the best way to put it. And so we are testing them not only for phytotoxicity, but we're also testing for efficacy to see if these products potentially could be used. Um, the reason I'm super interested in the 25B is of finding one Um is because we don't have a re-entry interval, which can be very challenging for some of my greenhouse facilities that run three shifts a day. There's no shutdown time to spray pesticides. And also for dipping, cuttings coming in. Because right now, I mean, the most famous research study was done with Safoil X up in Canada, dipping cuttings, showing how amazing it works. Um, no phytotoxicity. I mean, it, it, it's one of the best things you can do. But in the United States, dipping is not on the label yet. It's been at the EPA for years. We've been waiting for it. So it's coming. But right now, legally, my growers cannot take their cuttings, dip them in oil, and root them, even though that is one of the best way to stop, you know, like hemp russet mite and two-spot spider mites and broad mites from even getting started. The 25Bs, you don't have the the restrictions of an EPA label. So we can just, oh, let's try dipping. Oh, let's try, you know, drenching. Oh, let's, we can try all these different things. And it's not illegal because they don't have restrictive labels. So um, we are testing a couple products currently. Um, and I have high hopes for these. Um, because of the amount of research these companies have put into these products. Um, and there's, they're not just somebody making it at their house and, you know, spelling the insects wrong on the labels. Oh my God. Like six years ago, I was at, um, oh, which trade show was it? It was in, uh, I think it was, I almost said Comic-Con. That's the wrong, wrong show, wrong completely at uh, Canacon. And like I was looking at some of these 25B products and they didn't even have the pest spelled right on the packaging. And I'm like, how can I take this product seriously when you can't even spell the name right on your product? It's not like it was a typo in an email you sent me. It's on the printed label of the product. And when I really would start talking to these guys in these 25B products, they bailed on the conversation and don't want to talk to me because I'm asking the tough questions. Um, 
because most of these uh, 25B products are non-selective. Um, they generally are going to kill the pests just as equally as beneficials. So you do have mm -hmm. to be cautious with that. And again, you said the price point. I mean, I was calculating some of the prices and, you know, for, for $60 of Suffoil, if for some of these 25Bs, it's almost $400 for the same amount of product. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, Canada does not allow this to happen. Canada doesn't have this exemption list. Also in Canada, if you want to register a product in Canada, you have to prove at least 80% efficacy to get the product labeled up there. That was part one. We'll pick up our conversation next time on the podcast. That was Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget, at Kiss Organics, we have a wider range of products we offer on our website, ranging from soils, amendments, beneficial insects, sticky cards, soil testing analysis, and consulting. I also recently added a Patreon for folks interested in supporting the podcast directly. And lastly, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website homepage to stay up to date on the latest research and information. Thanks for listening.